0: Good morning. I am your host Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 21, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. With all the drama in the American body politic, does anyone know about COP Cop 23? Fresh from the UN Climate Summit that was convened in Bonn, Germany, Aaron Strong, University of Maine, Professor of Coastal and Marine Policy, will take us behind the scenes at the Global Summit with his works potent interdisciplinary approach he will offer privileged access to the cop 23 forum speaking of gatherings returning to ask a leader is body language expert patty wood who will weigh in on the social landmines of the day the workplace setting and maybe the thanksgiving table but i think there's so much going on the workplace we've got to get people to all tuck tuck in more than their shirt we'll be right back after a short station break Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest, and for the larger share of the program, is University of Maine coastal and marine policy professor Aaron Strong, who's recently returned from COP23, the International Climate Summit convened in Bonn, Germany. We're fortunate to have him weigh in with what occurred both in and out of the public eye at the forum. His research interests span the governance of ecosystem services, the market and non-market values that human beings derive from functioning ecosystems. His research is particularly focused on understanding the development of emergent environmental governance institutions and approaches for managing problems of carbon and nitrogen cycling in coastal systems. That's climate change, ocean acidification and problems of water quality and pollution just the person to report in today his work focuses on international approaches federal state agency practices and local community sustainability initiatives currently his work deals with one state level ocean acidification management in maine two coastal blue carbon accounting and institutional incorporation into conservation practice three perceptions Indicators and definitions of sustainability in coastal algal, that's the seaweed, harvesting and aquaculture. And four, not the final, the use of coastal ecosystem services framework in federal decision making. And five, the institutional interaction of international ocean governance and climate change policy regimes. And... He concerns himself with the study of effective sustainability pedagogy and curriculum development. He's trained, as I said earlier, in an interdisciplinary manner, and he's adopted some very specific methods here that combines the quantitative indicators and uh, in monitoring and qu- qualitative, in-depth, semi-structured. He completed his bachelor's of arts in political science and biology at Swarthmore College, his master's in climate change policy at Tufts University, and his Ph.D. in environment and resources at Stanford University. He comes to us today from Orono, 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 Maine, at the University of Maine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Aaron Strong.
1: Thanks so much Claudia for having me on the show today. I'm excited to talk about what transpired at COP.
0: Oh it's it's this is mind candy for all of us, especially those of us who are so over all the drama the drama. There's some legitimate concerns there, but it's it's that's the social cost of bad actors out there. So we, we want to get on to the the main event. Well with all the drama and the shiny objects being waved at the American public, I'm afraid many in this country completely missed. The Climate Summit in Bonn. Was this the first COP that you attended, Aaron Strong?
1: Um, It was not. It was actually the fourth COP that I've attended. My first one was way back in 2009 and Copenhagen, and I've been to three others since then, including the big one in Paris two years ago. Yes. So this was my my fourth go around the merry-go-round.
0: Well, could you compare? I mean, I think that this was probably very different from the previous three. What did you, what was the difference for you and uh, we can imagine what what was all about, but you can report from the inner sanctum how different it was this time.
1: Yeah, sure. So there's a, there's a couple things to relay there. One is there's a really big difference between the annual meetings like the one we had this year um, and the kind of big shows where we're supposed to get a major new treaty or major new agreement. And so when I was in Paris two years ago or Copenhagen in 2009, which was – the start of the Obama administration, yeah, and my apologies for the cell phone connection. Um, So the the first thing to say is that there's a big difference between a climate summit where there's a big new treaty being negotiated, like in Copenhagen or in Paris, and what we had this year in Bonn. And so, you know, your listeners can be forgiven for not paying as much attention because there wasn't a big new agreement being negotiated here. Um, this uh, meeting was far more similar to the meeting I attended in 2010 in in Cancun. But the other big palpable difference is that we're no longer in the Obama administration. We're in the Trump administration. And President Trump has announced that the United States will be leaving the Paris Agreement. Um, And ostensibly, the goal of the uh, COP23 this year was to continue to Negotiate the finer details of implementing that Paris Agreement. Now, you should know that the United States is the only country in the entire world that has announced its intention to leave the Paris Agreement. The other holdouts, Nicaragua and Syria, have recently joined uh, the Paris Agreement. So, there's some things that are similar and some things that are different this year. The similarity is that. Every single year, United States politics are front and center in these considerations. We take all of the oxygen out of the room. So eight years ago in Copenhagen, it was the first time the Obama administration had been to one of these. There was a lot of hope for a big new agreement. Obama himself went. Um, And the big question there was, you know, could you get the Senate to come along? We had failed climate and energy legislation in Congress um, in the lead-up, and that was seen as a big disappointment, and ultimately those talks collapsed. The similarity this year is that even with the U.S. being relatively absent, and I'll get to the finer details of kind of how our negotiators were doing on the ground there— um, is that the story in Bonn was the same story it always is, is what's the U.S. doing? And are they going to play ball? And this year it was really Trump has uh, announced the U.S. is leaving. How can we continue all the good work of the Paris Agreement um, in the absence of uh, the American administration? So the con- the thing that's sort of continuous across these experiences is that U.S. politics really shape on the international stage of climate negotiations. That being said, there's a whole lot of difference between what happened in terms of Trump administration negotiators and Obama administration negotiators.
0: Well, I want to think of this summit as not necessarily tiers that are hierarchical from each other, That's uh, I want to say maybe tracks that are the scientists— always taken in the same esteem, but the policymakers that may represent two different American administrations might be handled differently. But it's you are the sort of continual thread throughout from summit to summit, but maybe the policymakers are treated differently.
1: Yeah, so let me set the scene a little bit of what one of these summits is like. I like to say that it's kind of like uh, intensive congressional lobbying meets a major academic conference meets the Epcot Center in Florida. Wow. And the reason for that is that on the sidelines of all the negotiations and lobbying back and forth about text, it's all about negotiating essentially the treaty document, think of it like a bill, um, that all the countries of the world have to agree on. That's what the country negotiators are doing. On the sidelines of all of that are all of these other meetings and presentations from big NGOs, um, from academics, um, from scientists about their work and their information and how they want to help um, drive things forward. And it's not that that's entirely ignored by the negotiators. Often they come and show up, and they have their own politics of sort of you know, performing and, and, and putting out what they want to, to argue for. In addition to that, every single country, almost every country, has some sort of pavilion um, which is very uh, like an elaborate large diorama. The Moroccans are known for their sort of techno chic scene, and India had all of these crazy light really? sculptures that they're trying. They're trying to um, showcase what their country is doing about climate change, but also get people to come and pay attention to their country. It's a very um, unique and bizarre affair, and intermixed with all of that are our major celebrities coming through. You know that work and think and focus uh, on climate change. So you'll have you know, the sort of gawking of, oh, who's that? That might be more familiar in Hollywood than anywhere else. But, but we see that um, in, in Bonn as well. You know, the role of scientists is a really interesting one. Okay, They aren't negotiating. So scientists are not the State Department representatives or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs representatives in the room trying to work on the text. What scientists are doing is presenting information at these side events that may or may not be picked up or may or may not be listened to. So the compendium of all the scientific knowledge about climate change in the world is really the authoritative intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, the IPCC reports. And those are referred to regularly um, within the negotiations as sort of the collective understanding of climate change drivers and climate change impacts of the entire scientific community of the world. Um, and that's the formal way in which science kind of influences the negotiations, but there's a lot of informal ways in which scientists um, work with the negotiators from countries to advance particular positions during the negotiations.
0: Were you involved in that particular part or the more uh, the more informal part influencing policy?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'd I'd I we're... was involved in in both. In both. Um, okay. So I gave a formal presentation um, at a summit that was hosted at the U.S. Action Pavilion. So, getting back to our theme about the U.S. involvement, um, this year there was no there, there was no formal U.S. pavilion this year. Yes. So there was no center of the U.S. government activities. But what there was instead was 15 states and a whole lot of cities and a whole lot of NGOs put together something called the Climate Action Pavilion. And this was a group called the We Are Still In Coalition. And the We Are Still In Coalition basically represents all those people in the United States, all those state governments and cities that have said, we are still in the Paris Agreement, despite what our president has said and done. Um, And that uh, was a major forum for a lot of activities. which is a really unique kind of visible Uh, resistance to the Trump administration's activities, um, really led by the governor's offices and the governor of of California and the governor of Washington, as well as uh, the Nature Conservancy and some very large uh, NGOs. And I gave a presentation there at a panel called The Big Stink. And it was all about how do we think about carbon sequestration policies that might help advance climate action, um, one of the conversations in, in California right now is about how to treat natural lands and forests and agriculture mm-hmm. um, well, with the continuation of the cap-and-trade system. And so we got into some of the technical details there about how to think about um, carbon sequestration in forests from a from a policy perspective, comparing Washington's approach, California's approach, and what we're doing in Maine, and that was a panel that I was on. So you know, that's not part of the negotiations themselves, but it's a chance for, at the at that meeting, representatives from California, Washington, uh, Maine, Norway, the World Bank, and the Nature Conservancy to come together and share some thoughts, you know, through a panel and through conversation that really helps advance our thinking about what good policy strategies might be. Um, and there's a lot to be said for those kinds of public presentations. I, yes, That's and Erin Strong whole, I to
0: Yes, I want to ask, excuse me, about how productive it felt like so in the national leadership vacuum, did you find that there was a coherence in that, that inter that interstate and intermunicipal <laughs> kind of leadership that gave you some hope for a coherent eventual policy that could be adopted in in a more invigorated way in the national leadership picture.
1: Absolutely. The We Are Still In group is is powerful, it's organized, and it's really representing a really unique thing that's never really been seen before in, in the negotiations. And the reason is this. If you add up the economies of all of those 15 states that yes. have signed on uh, to the We Are Still In agreement, it'd be the third biggest economy in the entire world. Right. Right. Yeah. And so these are, quote, subnational entities, right? They're not countries. They don't negotiate treaties for all all of the things that he does. Governor Brown cannot negotiate a treaty. But he can really become a leader, and he has become a leader, in the leadership vacuum that we've experienced. And it really is a vacuum. So, We'll get to the, the one White House event in a little bit. Yes, that's um, right. Uh, but the formal U.S. presence was muted and dwarfed compared to the amazing and organized presence of the state uh, state leaders. And it was physically really visible. So you left the negotiation building, and the first thing you see – is this giant temporary structure with a huge American flag and a big sign that says we are still in. That's the first thing you see when you step out of the kind of formal, you know, UN negotiation hall. Is this giant space organized by, you know, the the leaders of uh, by state leaders in the United States. And that was a really visible sign. I got um, to say
0: Aaron, it's uh, really it's very sad that optic didn't get central viewing here in our media, I mean that 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 would have been an iconic sort of uh, graphic for us all to to feel like you know the the movement is persisting as you say. So it's it's very unfortunate. Yeah, no, There's a lot of cost. It's in- a
1: really powerful. It was one of the most. You know, when you think about your experience. You spent a week moving through this physical space, um, and you know, Germany in November is cold and dark right. and wet, right. um, and everyone's kind of bundled up. And so just think about a kind of dreary, gray November rain. And, you know, you come out, and then you have this sort of lit up, you know, scene of hope, and you feel dejected maybe, the negotiations aren't going well. And you know what? Um, the US is-
0: so uh, for those of you who just joined us, my guest... For this portion of the hour, coming back to us will be Aaron Strong. He is the University of Maine professor whose research focuses on coastal marine policy and international ocean policy and climate. And so uh, we're going to bring him on here. We've got you back on. Thank you. So you were saying about the U.S., the role yep. there. Back to that.
1: Great. So, you know, one of the stories that I want to share with your listeners I I met a a negotiator from the Pacific Island Nation of Vanuatu,
2: Um,
1: and we were talking uh, about the negotiations. And he said, you know, it's a real tragedy that Trump left, but he was so excited to see so many Americans there and so many uh, what we call in the UN speak subnationals, really meaning uh, state and city leaders from the United States. They're kind of filling the vacuum of leadership left by the Trump administration, and um, it was really a story of of hope that a lot can be done and the way can be shown even in the absence of leadership from Washington.
0: well, that's that's pause for some kind of rea- cause for reassurance to hear that. So now you you were talking a little bit about what side, piece you were involved in. Is there a particular paper you want to tell us that you presented? We just give it a little focus here in your own particular contribution at COP23 in Bonn, Germany last week and the week before.
1: Yeah, so my particular focus was a little bit less on my research and more on one of the things that I've gotten involved with um, ah. in uh, on colleges and universities trying to figure out how to go carbon neutral. Um, okay. So everyone wants to go carbon neutral and a lot of institutions have pledged to go carbon neutral but it turns out it's pretty hard to do. Um, And one of the reasons it's hard to do is that fossil fuels are totalizing. They're in so many of our our daily products, our daily lives, our transportation, our electricity, our buildings um, and we can you know move towards electric vehicles, we can move to more sustainable and green infrastructure Um, but there's still some component there. So if you take the University of Maine the University of Maine system had in 2005 emissions of about 100,000 tons a year. And those numbers don't really mean anything to anyone. But let's put it this way. Last year, they were 66,000. That's a, wow. gone down by 34%. That, and go. the way I like to put it is, hey, the University of Maine system has achieved the goals of the Paris Agreement, what which was the original pledge of the United States from the Obama administration in terms of the level of reduction. Okay. We've done it. We've achieved that. Um, goal, but the thing is, we have a bigger goal, and many other uh, institutions and and organizations and states and cities have bigger goals. We want to go fully carbon neutral. We want to get to zero. Right. Well, getting to zero is going to mean, in some way or another, buying offsets, enhancing carbon sequestration, keeping carbon pollution out of the atmosphere somewhere else to offset the smaller and smaller amounts, but still continued amounts of carbon pollution that we are emitting. And how you do that, how you purchase those offsets, those other sources of emissions, is technical and sort of boring, but also really critical to the overall effectiveness of, of, of climate policy. And so I serve on a national working group that's coming up with guidelines for colleges and universities to purchase those offsets. Um, and that's a continuation of work I did in California when I was at Stanford, okay. which was helping Cal EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency of California, write the rules for the offset programs that are uh, existing in California under the cap-and-trade system there. Now, offsets are really tricky because it's a sort of form of carbon trading, and that means the polluters are still polluting. And that has all kinds of consequences that – We should not ignore right, Um, and we've covered that area. There's a social
0: justice issue with
1: that, and we've there's a huge social justice issue, and so that's one of the things I wanted to bring to bear was here's how universities and colleges are thinking about how to go carbon neutral in ways that don't compromise justice, and that was my little slice of the pie to share that with folks from. You know, on the on the stage, I, there were people from the governor's offices of Oregon and Washington um, and from the World Bank talking about their experiences. This is to an audience of maybe a couple hundred within this U.S. climate action pavilion. Now, did that presentation, you know, help my career? It's one more thing I can put on my CV. Did that presentation help build a sort of group of people thinking about sharing expertise that might lead to better policy solutions? Yeah, it chips away at that. Did it influence the negotiations? Probably not. Oh. It's the informal work that scientific experts and advisors do that influences the negotiation that's probably far more powerful and meaningful in terms of the ultimate treaty document rather than these formal presentations of work or experiences or papers or research that take place uh, throughout the meeting.
0: So you're an ambidextrous co- uh, climate scientists, you're working with both policy and with the technical science side. So in those informal settings, w- were there policymakers talking with the scientists and back and forth? Or did they tend to sort of select that, you know, they were a little more insular in that way? How, how productive was that? How much cross? Yeah,
1: that's a, gr- that's a great question, Claudia. Um, there absolutely are. And so you have all of these kind of sidebar meetings where new um, negotiation texts are being produced, and scientists are consulted, and really, it's as simple as any other meeting. You're sent a document and asked for your your track changes or your comments, and you email it back, and you have a conversation about it. Wow! Um, and there's no formal, you know, way that you might be invited or not invited to the table. It's simply um, negotiators who are not scientists trying to figure out what to put together that will help advance their own, you know, country agendas, um, and one of the things they need to do is make sure that their scientific input and so I can you know share with you please. some of the things that got involved with okay. um, there uh, if you'd like to yes. sort of hear about it I can't go into the super nitty-gritty details of who what where because it's all kind of off, off the record but I can okay. give you, your your audience a flavor of what that might look please like. do yeah um, so one of the things that was produced was um, a new document a new kind of treaty um, called the Ocean Pathway. Now, this, this whole meeting was being led by Fiji. They were the president of the meeting. Right. Every, every meeting's got to have a president. And so Fiji wanted to highlight as an ocean nation um, the, the role of the oceans in mitigating climate change. Um, and when we say mitigate, we mean um, reducing emissions. So coastal, healthy coastal ecosystems that have lots of seagrasses and coastal wetlands and mangroves they soak up a lot of carbon pollution. Yeah. and But there hasn't been a lot of movement on getting a formal way to think about those kinds of ecosystem services, benefits of, of coastal protection within the negotiations. So one of the ways to do this was to um, come up with a new, a new document, um, and I saw draft versions of that, um, and some of the sort of language that was in there left some technical ambiguity about what exactly we were talking about in terms of uptake of carbon by the oceans. And providing some comments and inputs on that, I think I'm very happy with the outcome of this oh. Ocean Pathway document. You can look it up and Google it and see it. Okay, it we we'll do. See, it might seem like a little bit of a banal statement, um, but what it is is the first time of recognizing the role of the ocean in climate policy in the same way that forests have been previously recognized very extensively And that, I was not alone in terms of, you know, participating in sort of commenting on this. Um, There were dozens of scientists from around the world who, you know, were consulted and brought in and are part of the leadership teams in producing this. Um, And that's just all a kind of informal way in which, you know, uh, scientists who are interested can build the interpersonal connections that ultimately leads to a new, um, you know, negotiated treaty document.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guest here on Ask a Leader is Professor Aaron Strong, whose research focuses on coastal marine policy at the University of Maine. He's recently returned from the UN Summit COP23, convened in Bonn, Germany, the last couple of weeks. He's our correspondent, in essence, and uh, giving us uh, some cause for hope here. So I want to take a sort of a psychological pulse on where the... Participants so involved in this intense activity, this driven activity, that it it sort of it helped them bury their panic with how the trends are because we're we're not seeing the carbon the greenhouse gas emissions dropping. They're starting to pick up again. So did did the sheer involvement and the application of all the participants sort of set aside everybody's dread and panic?
1: It, it really, it really does, Claudia. Um, you know, there is not a lot of dread and panic in the negotiations. And then every once in a while, when things get stalled out and the sort of technical aspects of what should be referred to how in a, in a particular, you know, treaty document boils over and someone gets really frustrated and then they go off and they say, look, you know, we need to take action now. We need to stop, you know, kind of this, this nitpickiness and, and concern. We need to keep our eyes on the prize. So there's sort of these rhetorical flourishes that boil up when people need to kind of remind themselves and everyone around them of the stakes. But then they bury their heads in the details again. And that's exactly how all of the negotiations go. Every time I've ever, ever been to them, and this year was no exception. And the urgency for action is really applied by young people and by community groups and by folks coming to these meetings. And coming in and you know, sort of, not necessarily staging protests, but having visible signs and calls for action. You know, so one of the things that happens is every day, the um, Climate Action Network, which is this consortium of groups from around the world, right, um, has a big theatrical presentation of the fossil of the day, and it's a country that did the, the most to obstruct progress on, on, on fighting climate change at, hmm. during the, that the negotiations on that day. And they have this whole sort of theatrical presentation of the fossil of the day, but it's really kind of well-watched and well-attended. And, you know, I don't know whether countries try to avoid becoming the fossil of the day, but it's, it's a way that civil society can come in and really try to press for more climate action. I but love it's absolutely it. true that within the day-to-day negotiations, there is not always this extreme sense of urgency that we might hope to see. And it's the the role of academics, but really the role of um, activists to make sure that that urgency is not forgotten.
0: So I guess the current American administration bringing the clean coal uh, dog and pony show made their own fossil of the day presentation. Were you there for that?
1: I was there for that. Tell Um, us, us, I I, heard a little bit
0: about it on a a, a different media platform. Tell us what that was all about in a productive way. The drama isn't Um, too interesting,
1: but maybe it is. Yeah, there was a lot of drama there. So most of the U.S. negotiators, their, their career folks, their holdovers from the Obama administration, they basically got no instruction, as far as I could tell, from the Trump administration. And they were basically quiet. Um, the whole time. So you'd be in, they'd be in the room. The U.S. would be wow. at the negotiating table and saying nothing, um, which was itself unusual. Okay. But the one official White House event, right? So we're thinking the Trump and Pence White House um, that took place was one of these side events around clean coal and nuclear. And the attention was extreme. This is not a big room. It holds about 200 people. And the line to get in started about three hours before the event started. Oh, my gosh. The folks presenting came in through a side entrance, not the main entrance, so they didn't have to walk through the whole building to find their room. They walked in, um, and they sat at the podium and started giving their presentations about the need for fossil fuels to be part of the solution. About 10 minutes into the presentation, 180 to 190 of those 200 people stand up and start singing to the tune of God Bless America a song about needing to keep the coal in the ground, and then they walked out. And they walked out of the room, leaving a handful of people, and those people started asking questions about how ridiculous this was, and most of them were negotiators from around the country. And that was it. You know, that event was really effectively, I'd say, protested, but not shouted down. It was, it was a whole group from around the world got together and said, this is absolutely absurd. And in order to show how absurd it is, we are going to go to the event, stand up, sing, walk out, and have our own counter-event right outside, which they did, which had a tremendous amount of media attention. And I should say the governors of Oregon and Washington were there giving press conferences. Governor Inslee was in the room at the start of the U.S. presentation, left and gave a press conference outside, um, and and kept going, Governor Inslee of Washington State. So it was kind of a debacle. And uh, I know personally several of the the student leaders um, and young people who are involved in organizing this, Sort of shutdown of the, the Trump administration's event, and they were very thoughtful. They said, "We don't want this to be a shouting match. We want the news story to be the whole world is rejecting this kind of, you know, backwards thinking." And that really was, I think, what the the media picked up from that event. I don't really know what they were anticipating. I don't really know why they, you know, um, why they bothered showed up and why they bothered right. to do that. Um, right. They had to know that that's what, what was going to happen. And that was picked up you know, this the story was covered in in, in the media, but what wasn't covered is just the vacuum of leadership of, of the United States in the actual negotiations at the negotiating table. Well, they media hates there, a vacuum. Media doesn't ever nothing. cover.
0: Yeah, media doesn't know how to cover a vacuum. But no, more nuanced platforms, like I might consider us. But <laughs> you know, we can. Do, but that's it's sort of not the DNA for what the news does. But so I I want to understand. So when the one hundred and eighty people after they stood their ground and then withdrew so there was a, there was a vacuum there was so did the the presentation resume on this clean cold dog and yeah, pony yeah the,
1: the interactions with the audience resumed um, so okay. it wasn't that it was shut down um, but down they're suddenly presenting to you know kind of embarrassingly right the optics of this are the yeah. room that had was jam packed with hundreds and hundreds of people and now you have 12 people scattered throughout the audience you know, more security than people at that point oh, wow. um, uh, attending. And I think the goal, I know, of the organizers of the the sort of resistance protest was to, you know, embarrass them and have that be the, the story. And it was palpably effective. There was lots of sort of cheering and clapping outside. And, you know, it was quite a sight to see and quite a sight to be present because it is, the, you know, it's theatrical, right? Like there's the physicality of the space and the images make a tremendous amount of difference, just like having the big, you know, we are still in the Paris Agreement um, pavilion be the first thing you see when you walk out of the main negotiation space.
0: Well, this is the, the productive part of the what was an amazingly productive relay from you today is we're drawing down in our time what you are going to be doing as a result of what you took from the conference and what we constituents can do as a follow-up on our state and local levels,
1: absolutely, it's a great question, and I'm really glad that you're asking Please. it, Claudia. Um, so I will be going to COP24 next year personally, but and that's a bigger one. Well, they're really trying to finalize, um, you know, amounts of money that are going to help poor countries adapt and finalize um, a lot of the rules for Paris, and those rules matter a lot. They're ultimately they're they're kind of boring and hard to get involved with, but. Ultimately, the success or failure of the Paris Agreement is going to be whether it steers us into a future with increased ambition um, or with plotting a long ambition. And um, next year, the meeting is in Poland in December, and that's really going to be uh, a bellwether for whether this is um, something that we should all really encourage and support. But I think in answer to your question of what, what can we all do, supporting more cities and states in the United States joining the We Are Still In coalition, saying we're still part of the Paris Agreement and we are going to work to implement the provisions of the Paris Agreement, even in the absence of the federal government. The bigger and more powerful that coalition is, the more actual difference in terms of emissions it's going to have. We've already seen that states can lead the way um, in terms of reducing emissions. We've seen that uh, the Clean Energy um, economy can can grow and can become cheaper and can displace um, fossil fuels, and that's happening in the absence of comprehensive, you know, federal climate and energy policy. It's happening in the absence of U.S. leadership internationally, but it's still happening. And so, all the things that we can do are to continue to support that happening, um, to continue to work at the subnational level in the community that you live in to say, we're, we support the Paris Agreement and we're going to become part of the Paris Agreement and work towards implementing it, because those voices do add up, they do matter, and fundamentally, um, they can make a difference. And so, you know, pay attention to—it doesn't just have to be cities and states. Institutions, organizations, universities can all join the We Are Still In group, and then you can really find out, well, what does it mean to be in the Paris Agreement? You know, the U.S. had a pledge um, of emissions reductions that many people think didn't go far enough. How do we go farther than that? Um, how do we make sure that Paris ultimately is a success? Um, and there are plenty of legitimate criticisms of the Paris agreement that it doesn't go far enough, fast enough, that exactly. it doesn't actually avoid you know, the horrors of climate change for so many people who are not responsible for it around the world. You know, so let's not shut our eyes and say whatever uh, for Paris is is the best, but know that all of the actions of organizing in the absence of federal leadership do make a difference and they are visible on the international stage.
0: So, uh, in the wrap up, before I send you packing to that, uh, your remote lecture that you're going to give in just a few yep. shakes here. That So, we are still in, that's an international coalition, correct?
1: That's correct.
0: And then, so then there's all, so we're all trying to figure out where we put our lot in with so many different organizations that are struggling to respond to the national. American national leadership vacuum and or or regression, shall we call it? So, so every every organization locally and state ought to keep their eye on what we are still in and and I'm just looking at the Poland, the COP. It won't be is a COP 24. I guess it'll be but, called. At the IPCC yep. will be convening in 2018, so there will be a an election, a congressional election just a month prior. So there are all kinds of pieces to put up there in the sort of lead up to that, uh, both the primaries and the general elections that to help shriek out the uh, the climate urgency messages.
1: Yep. Yeah, we'll, um, so Katowice is the city in Poland where this will be in December, and that will come about one month after the midterm elections. It'll be an when, interesting stretch. We'll, wow. We'll know a, a, a lot more about that. So, you know, stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, Keep working in your communities um, to address the, the challenges of climate change and, and climate justice and know that that is all playing out on the international stage as well.
0: Well, that is all the time we have, and I know you you're, you were going to be late for your remote. Just tell them you were on the uh, Distinguished Community Radio uh, program. Thank you, Aaron Strong, for taking the time, and happy adjusting back to your time zone and relishing a Thanksgiving holiday.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That was Professor Aaron Strong, Coastal Marine Policy International, Ocean Policy and Climate Scientist. And he's recently returned from the UN Summit COP23, convened in Bonn, Germany last week. And he's on the University of Maine faculty. We'll be right back after a very short station break with body language expert Patty Wood helping us to spot the sexual predator a mile away. All right, be right back. It's Gretchen Yanover, and the track is called Turn Around. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Patty Wood, international speaker and trainer. She's deemed by the Washington Post as the gold standard of body language experts, and she's an excellent guide in our going into the holidays with... uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna only spend time on the sexual predation. The Thanksgiving folks, the the table arrangements. That you're on your own with that this time around. Patty Wood offers practical advice about accurately reading body language, and in her book, Snap: Making the Most of First Impressions by Language and Charisma, it's a good read and reread. She's given speeches and training programs on creating and healthy work environment, preventing and dealing with sexual harassment, bullying with clear communication and conflict management skills. You may have seen her analyses on Huffington Post, USA Today, the New York Times and People Magazine, as well as on CNN, NBC, ABC, Fox News and PBS. She completed her bachelor's degree in communication from Florida State University, her master's of arts and speech communications from Auburn. She was on the continuing education faculty of Kennesaw University, the Wharton School of Business and Emory University. She comes to us today from over uh, around different parts around hotlanta georgia welcome back to ask a leader patty wood it's a pleasure to be here well going into the holidays with some difficult dialogues we're going to we're going to hunker into some of these uh, persistent things that since we arranged this interview there've been more people that are uh, being called on bad bad behavior, uh, to say right. sexual predation is on everyone's radar. Therefore, let's consider the proactive tack that you could offer, the really proactive one in the workplace setting. We've covered it with an employment attorney with her, from uh, Sapphire Legal, her focus on workplace culture, politics, and then even etiquette. So in the name of prevention, how do you, Pattywood, equip us in how to see it coming a mile away?
2: Um, it is just being really certain of the power dynamics in any situation you go into so if you're going into a, any business meeting whether it's one-on-one and one-to-many be aware of who has power and um, Be able to read their personality type. Uh, If you're familiar with the DISC personality inventory, there is a personality type called the driver. And the driver personality is most likely to get you in trouble. They want to get things done. They're very strong. Um, Their pace of speaking is typically very fast and very loud and very forceful, and they don't take note easily. So you can even recognize, before you go into a meeting, a, a driver kind of personality on the phone and say, okay, I know what I'm getting into, I know this is a strong personality, how can I prepare myself for this interaction? Um, Anytime there's an inequity in power, you're more likely to um, have that circumstance where that person feels that they can do something without you directly accepting it. Um, Another thing I think is really important is for you to recognize, everyone to recognize, that your central nervous system tends to alert you immediately when there's danger. So um, let's say you're in an interaction um, and all of a sudden you find yourself freezing in place. That freezing in place signal is... Uh, um, actually an indication that you are in danger. If you've ever heard of fight or flight, right. in actuality, it's freeze, flight, fight, fall or faint response. So your body will go into one or more of those modes when it feels danger. Um, think about it this way. Your limbic system that protects you, that protects you that's its main right. job, right. Um, is picking up on thousands of of nonverbal cues. We can uh, actually communicate with just one other person up to 10,000 nonverbal cues in less than a minute. Uh-huh. So that limbic system is processing how somebody is standing if they're leaning too close, if their voice level goes up or changes from um, decisiveness and strength to predatory. So you're picking up on those signals and from now on when your body signals you something's not right? You can say, hmm, I don't feel comfortable. And typically that freeze response overpowers your your um, ability to know what to do or where to go in a particular situation. So you might even prepare yourself with, with messages that you can give out, like I'm not really comfortable right now or I need to take a break or um, let's change topics or um, stop. So plan ahead of time what you feel comfortable saying in any situation you go into and how you might handle a situation you might go into. Uh, Also be aware of when your body is anxious. Um, Years ago, I was a consultant with a large consulting firm, and I was in the break room with the support staff, all women, and we were gathered in a circle. And two of the male consultants came in and joined our circle, and they started telling off-color jokes. Okay. And the women immediately froze in place and started giggling nervously, very right. high anxiety. And I'm in this situation, and I'm going, oh, my God, they're really uncomfortable this is horrible. And um, I glared at the men. Of course, men are less likely to be able to pick on nonverbal cues than women. We're much more adept at that. Mm -hmm. And so the men left the room. I turned to the women and said, I have a feeling that made you uncomfortable. Did that make you uncomfortable? And then I asked for their permission to go talk to the men. I saw the nonverbal signals that they were terribly uncomfortable and highly anxious and were frozen in place. I communicated that to the guys, and the guys said, what are you talking about? They were laughing. They enjoyed our jokes. We were having a good time. And that is part of the problem. We're sending signals, and in this case, the men didn't pick up on the nervousness or anxiety or the frozen in place. They just heard laughter. They didn't see the distinction in anxiety and nervousness and fear and true laughter. So if you find yourself uncomfortably laughing, say, hmm, I'm actually uncomfortable. And you can say out loud, you know, I'm actually uncomfortable with what you're saying. Could you not say that? Or I'm actually uncomfortable. Let's change subjects. Or I'm actually uncomfortable and leave the room.
0: So, Patty, I want to break it down in that moment. So there may still be that kind of involuntary giggle. So it's a matter yeah. of, like, we pro practicing, like, with your heads up here, which I really appreciate, especially now, that we sort of practice that we're going to try to clear the, the giggle aside or say, I want to register that, my bearing right now you may hear you may hear a giggle but i'm i'm telling you i'm as tense as heck right now tense as hell or something like that right. just sort of like point out what you're evoking and give it yes. the context cuz they're not going
2: to figure it out the guys right you have to say it out loud you right. have to use a word message right. we are again we're thinking we're sending a very strong message nonverbally but men are not as adept at picking it up and here's something else that's interesting okay. you know years ago when i was doing research on sexual harassment in florida there were over 900 reported cases in state government of sexual harassment. Only but 900. In every case, wow. Yeah, this is a while ago. Uh, state Oof. government. So, but in every case where the woman communicated, stop, no, I don't like this, don't do this anymore, even if it was a note, the men stopped. What was interesting is how few women were saying, stop, don't. Um, again, you've got this power dynamic where we don't know what to do or say. Right. I think this seismic shift, this huge shift in how we're thinking about sexual harassment is changing that power dynamic. And it should allow us to say, hey, don't do that. Stop. Don't do that. I'm uncomfortable. We should be able to verbalize this from now on. So that's a redemptive piece going
0: on right now, that the social vocabulary is now increasing. Right. Right.
2: Okay. Right, and and it should empower us. No, and and we'll all, we also now have a sisterhood. So if we were in that, so say, say that my support staff was in that room without me, um, they now that women can look at each other and say, "It's happening right now." Hmm we're not alone in this and say something together and, and gain strength in that sisterhood. Exactly.
0: That's what I want you to open up to a pack unpackage for us is the role of bystanders. Maybe if we're not the yes. direct object of the derision of the d- driven or bullying commentary, the assault, a sexual harassing, what we as bystanders, we're not we're not freezing in the way the object of that uh, gesture. So, what can a bystander do effectively in these situations?
2: Well, it, um, think about that situation I was in with, m- with my support staff. I go back to that and I think, should I have said something in the moment? And okay. I was afraid of, it, of of embarrassing them. Now I wouldn't be. In that moment, okay. as a, a woman that had a higher level of power than the women that were uncomfortable, and guess what? I wasn't uncomfortable because I had equal power with those men. I can say now in that moment, "Hey, guys, stop. I'm uncomfortable." I wouldn't even necessarily call out the woman. I would say, I'm uncomfortable with that. Let's talk about something else. And so to me, the biggest problem has been a sense of I don't know what to do, and people end up being complicit, or they say it's none right. of my business. Yeah. It has to, it, A lot of people say, oh, it has to do with romance, or it has to do with that their relationship, or I don't know what's really going on. And so we look they. They or we look the other way. That's complicity. That's saying it's okay with you. And now we know it's not okay. And we're responsible for all of each other. And men can in that that moment say, hey, stop. I'm uncomfortable with that. Don't do that. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on
0: KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest on Ask a Leader is body language expert Patty Wood, helping us navigate those office workplace setting encounters with in- where we're increasingly more aware of the offenses that and transgressions that have been occurring, and we're gonna after the show. There's gonna be all sorts of additional new way in, so we're just gonna have to brace ourselves for that and step everybody step up. So I'm glad that you're calling out. And when we're talking about the bystanders, not just the fellow females in the room, it's well, and and we know men are also they they're objects of some of the harassment. I I I mentioned that in what we're uh, some other of the platforms that we're working on here at KUCI. So it's men and women that can do the standing up. So let's say it's it's close up, though. Like, you know, there are some of these cop the feel at the photo op. You know, there's a lot of people implicated. So what do we do in those kind of settings? I think part
2: of it, again, is feeling the energy that's coming off somebody as you interact with them. And the minute the arm goes too close into a part of your body you don't want it to be. Right. You you actually move away. Again, don't go in that frozen position and freeze in place, Keep but moving. actually move move away. Okay. And a scowl at that point is a good thing. Um, because what we need to do is actually do something to punish the bad behavior. Okay. And if that might mean in that moment that they look awfully So you want to sanction them. You want to punish them. And I give everybody permission, if you're in that situation where somebody has been overtly um, abusive or sexual, to say out loud um, to those around you, don't do that to me. Okay. Because sometimes people are secretive in the way they grab those little interactions, and they get away with it. Because the person they're doing it to, their victim, is afraid of embarrassing them. Do not be afraid of embarrassing somebody that treats you inappropriately. Actually claim that. Go ahead and embarrass them.
0: Okay, that's the that is the public service announcement. We're going to wrap the interview with because it's. I mean, it's anticipation of this happening to any one of us is the first step, and knocking off that three by five card of reactions to verbal or physical kinds of untoward behavior gets us ready to 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 get out of the freeze and, uh, as you right. say, to, to sort of punish the behavior and that kind of thing. So, can I say one more thing uh, that I absolutely. think is really important? Pay. And that
2: is to look after your sisters. That's, we all have um, to so do that. So if you know somebody that's in your work environment, in your business environment, in your personal life, that is not a good person and that has done something to you or one of your sisters, do not keep it a secret. We're no, no. longer nope. in shadow. We are not. Um, it, it becomes, again, you're complicit if you let that happen. You need to say out loud, hey, um, I hear you're thinking about doing some business with so-and-so. Are you aware of anything about them that would make you uncomfortable going forward? Oh, you're not? I, well, I am. Okay, Patty. Patty Wood, it's so good to have you back
0: on the show. Thanks for taking the time. And with your full plate this Thanksgiving, I'm wishing you well. You take care. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. My guest was body language expert Patty Wood, helping us to navigate the the bestial workplace setting. We're going to tune out here with uh, next week's guests are going to be Jane Page. She's going to bring on two actors, and uh, they're going to talk about Intimate Apparel, the play they're going to do, as well as Steve Allison and... Kevork, Abzajian, there are going to be two scientists filing a report about their recent visit to the 45th Congressional District Mimi Walters' office. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone.